The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And uh, we don't have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, you normally have Kate and me, but now you just have me and Nate because Kate is late, which rhymes. Uh, Kate's late and Alex Stamos, oh, who is uh, on the line here and we are bringing him on. So I'm going to get started without Kate and she will berate me for that if she chooses later. Uh, I am here with Nate Persily and Alex Stamos when he materializes, um, which he will do all of a sudden, as if uh, in a in a in a uh, uh, a gin out of a, a, a being summoned, <laughs> uh, and Kate will show up whenever she shows up. Um, so there she, uh, uh, there she is. Look at that. You see, you go live. Oh my gosh. And- Nate, is that your background, Nate? Well, oh my God! Wait for it! The... Wait for it! Oh, there. oh <laughs> perfect! Now you just make me feel unoriginal, you know? Well, yeah, <laughs> that was. I thought that if you were gonna, you know, do a if this was a Scotch tasting of sorts, then I should have the the bar in the background. And I contemplated having the Cheers cast, but I thought that betrayed social distancing. So I thought I would go to the empty cheers bar to be the, uh, you know, the one talking head there. It's like the sad end, right? That's right. Closed. Sam has gone home. Yeah. All right. So uh, we are all here. We are live on YouTube. Uh, We are being watched by thousands and thousands of people with many extra zeros relative to reality. Um, uh, Nate personally, uh, I don't quite know how to introduce Nate, uh, except to say he's one of those people like me in some ways who has diverse weird interests that all came crashing into each other at just the right moment. He's an election law guy. I've always thought of him as like a sort of election law campaign finance guy, but then he kind of got interested in platforms and disinformation and he ended up uh, doing this really cool work trying to uh, get uh, trying to get academics ac- access to uh, Facebook data about disinformation. Uh, and then, of course, it all smashed into each other. And we have the question of how do you conduct an election in the context of a massive set of disinformation, plus the sort of normal old election meltdown that happens when you can't go to the polls because you'll get a virus and die. Um, So all of that's going on. It's all within Nate's wheelhouse. And he is at the center of a lot of cool conversations right now. And then we have Alex Stamos, who, uh, again, all one of these kind of diverse, fascinating individuals who don't never quite know how to describe him. Alex was the chief security officer for Facebook. So he was the on, on uh, the sort of management of the kind of 
how do you deal with the disinformation problem from the uh, from the point of view of a tech company that has to deal with it. He's also just a really diverse and creative mind who thinks about all kinds of other things. And he's running the Stanford Internet. Uh, what's it called, Alex? The Internet Observatory. Observatory. It, it's Thank the coolest. The, the Internet it's Observatory. The hang out. It's, it's a word is, that doesn't show up in the Stanford Academic Handbook. That's why right. it's called the Observatory. It's where everybody nobody... knows your name. So he is now, among other things, a colleague of Nate personally. Does that give a reasonable introduction of the two of you? Sure. Okay, so here's the question I want to start with. Also, everyone wants to talk to them right now, and we are very lucky for getting to talk to you guys. I feel yeah. like you have the most relevant knowledge of in this moment, uh, and it's kind of amazing. So as I said to both of you, I think separately on Signal, please don't get the virus or get hit by a car or have anything bad happen to you. We need your brains at this precise moment. So here's the first question that I just want to start with. Are we totally fucked or is there some way we can have an election in November that actually will not merely have integrity but be perceived to have integrity? Not totally. How's that? Uh, <laughs> you gotta, it, depend, it depends on whether you think the, uh, you know, the, I'll just open this up, whether you think the can is half full or not. Um, Nate, are you using your son's green screen? My son's green screen? This is my green screen. <laughs> okay. If there's any doubt. Um, uh, anyway, so yeah. So there's, so many different arenas of dysfunction just on the question of like whether we can pull off an election that is safe and healthy. Um, I think that is where I'm spending most of my time these days. Um, and look, we have the capacity to do it. Uh, if, if we had more money that would be going to the local officials and the like. Um, but I think that um, it's really up in the air. I mean, I, I'm, I'm dealing with things these days like the the weight of mail ballots and how that interacts with the postal service uh, uh, system, the price of outside lockbox facilities and how you have to, um, you know, what that's gonna cost. The fact that now in some places that some counties that I've talked to, they've lost two thirds of the polling places that they normally have. Uh, they're now unwilling to be available under any circumstances also their you know senior living facilities schools fire stations and the like all taken out of the system you've got a large share of the poll workers you know the average poll worker is about 70 years old in the u.s and so all of them uh, you know a large share of them are not willing to serve on election day and uh so Nate, talk about your students paper about the signatures i thought that was fascinating yeah, we're going to put this out on the web in, a, in about a week or so. We're circulating it to the um, local officials here in California. But but I this was like one of the narrowest classes I've ever taught, but my students were just interested in it. We And in the fall, we did a class on how you verify signatures on mail ballots. I had some students reason that were really interested in that question. Now it's strangely relevant. And so... Um, you know, this is going to be one of the big questions, especially as, as those who are preaching voter fraud are concerned about mail balloting, is how do you verify the signatures on what could be 50, 60, 70 million ballots that are cast up in the fall? And so, um, you know, that, those are the things that are keeping me up at night. I, I, so the, the question as to whether we will be able to pull it off, 
Right now, we certainly can't. And you can see that in Wisconsin. Right now, we don't even know if there's going to be an election tomorrow in Wisconsin. You have the governor who's now closed it down. You've got uh, Republicans who are suing to, to try to reinstate it. Um, and so if we're in that situation in the fall, then, then we've got a real catastrophe on our hands. We have enough time to do the planning. Um, there's going to be a lot of triaging that's going on here. And so you know, I, I see this more as like a public administration problem, just thinking about how the logistics could be put together to, to try to pull off this election. What do you think, so if you had to identify the single biggest impediment to running a reasonable election, November, I don't know the date of the election this year, but the, the first Monday, first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, what is the single biggest impediment to doing that? And what is the low hanging fruit in terms of addressing that single biggest impediment? Well, so, you know, the easy answer is to say resources and the resources come in three, um, three or four buckets, right? So obviously money is a big barrier here and you've got local jurisdictions that simply don't have the money to uh, conduct, you know, to make a huge transition to say vote by mail. And so that's gonna cost several billion dollars if we wanted to pull that off. Um, and so money is a, is a big obstacle, but it's not the only obstacle because you could have all the money in the world, but if no poll workers are willing to show up on election day or no facilities are going to open, you've got, you know, just real sort of basic infrastructure problems uh, that, that you're having to deal with. Um, and then, of course, this is all in the context of partisan polarization, whereas I, th I think two weeks ago we might have had a window on vote by mail to convince sort of a bipartisan group to say, look, we're going to have to shift voters to mail because we just don't have the, you know, the, the, uh, much option. And frankly, there's no real evidence that it's going to have a big you know, partisan impact one way or the other. But now both the president and then today I saw uh, Rona McDaniels has come out so strongly against vote by mail as being uh, fraudulent that we, we missed that vote. But so the resources, which are, which are personnel facilities and frankly time, we need to figure out ways to stretch out the voting period and to stretch out the vote counting period so that the administrators are able to um, be able to do this in a deliberate and fair way. I'm not sure I heard what the low-hanging fruit in there was. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. The, uh, the fruit all seemed really up that tree. <laughs> I think I should just like spit into a tube and like with my DNA and just mail it to my local election official. That seems privacy um, supportive. <laughs> yeah, all right, so the low-hanging fruit. So, so, here, so let, me, let me float an idea that is not low-hanging, but is if do it, we could do it relatively quickly, which is that if we um, mobilize the National Guard to serve as poll workers, right, in the battleground states, um, that would solve our poll worker shortage. Now, there's obviously lots of concerns about essentially militarizing the election, right? You can think, think of that. But um, that is, if, if we had that resource available to the local election officials, that would, I think, make a big difference. Um, there's, you know, there are other things that we could do um, that are, you know, um, you know, it's just about informational interchange. And I've been tweeting a little bit about this. 
making sure that there are kind of uniform templates for vote by mail and the envelopes and all that kind of stuff. And so the Center for Civic Design has actually done a good job on that. Getting that into the hands of the local election officials, that I think is low hanging fruit. Uh, and frankly, just making sure everybody has a plan by the, um, you know, by the end of May. What uh, happens if we get another situation like um, Iowa? And was well, Iowa as I mean, bad as we thought it was? Yeah, and well, Alex Iowa's, also pitch in here because I know that yeah, you Iowa kind of was heard. a particular type of bad, and okay. I think it's quite instructive, right? Which is that, I, so I'm, I'm part of some of the group of techies who are thinking about well, what are the technical solutions to dealing with with this election dysfunction? And frankly, you know, this there is an app for this, right? Which is that you do not want to roll out a new app for this election to deal with these problems with uh, COVID, right? And and so, but you are still going to have to make some fundamental changes to state websites, which which there's where your, your Iowa problem is. Um, you're going to have to make changes to the voter registration databases in order to make sure that there's, there's uh, reliable addresses in the um, files and everything so that you can actually the right ballot to the right people. Um, and so, yeah, I am. I, I want to push people away from thinking that there's an easy tech technological fix like the Iowa app, right? Um, because one of the things that Iowa teaches us, right, is that the app itself, as I understand it, was actually not the big problem. It was the way that the app had interacted with the various communication systems that they had in place. And, you know, technology can work great on your iPhone, but if you don't some way of getting the information to the officials, you're screwed. Alex, if you want to weigh in on that technical side. Yeah. So on the, the, I dove a little bit, uh, my team and I dove a little bit into the Iowa app debacle. One of the core problems was, so Nate's right. Like one of their key issues was on the taking the backend data, which was being recorded correctly and transferring that into the tabulation system that the Iowa Democratic Party was supposed to use. That transfer was broken. Um, but the other like kind of core operational problem was that there were changes in the app that were being demanded by the customer, uh, namely the Democratic Party, all the way up to a couple of days before the election. And to get a mobile app in a, uh, an app store requires at least four or five days, sometimes a couple of weeks, especially if you don't have, if you're not a Facebook or a Google or somebody who's pushing apps all the time, you might be waiting a couple of weeks. And so because they couldn't get the latest app into the app store, they had to ask people to sideload. And to do that means asking like these 70 something year old volunteers, uh, walking them through these incredibly complicated steps. And that that was a complete failure. And so you only had like less than 30% of the people who are supposed to be doing the work on the app had the app installed. And so, you know, all kinds of screw ups from top to bottom. I, For me, the lesson from um, Iowa, uh, you know, my, I have always thought that the kind of next generation of foreign interference in our elections is going to be directly attacking the legitimacy of the election. And I, you know, wrote this piece uh, for Ben in Lawfare, uh, in which I theorized that the way you would do that from a disinformation perspective is you'd use hacking to create like base problems on the ground, and then you would amplify those problems using online disinformation as well as maybe overt disinformation and the like. I think what Iowa demonstrates is you don't necessarily need the hacking, right? So if you have uh, screw ups, there's no indication of any kind of foreign interference at all in Iowa. It was all domestic mistakes that created all these operational problems. But then a huge number of Americans immediately weaponized every little bit of information that leaked out and turned it uh, into their own 
part. And so there's partisan between Republicans and Democrats, and there's also all the people for all the different Democrat candidates trying to interpret their own, um, and you know, interpret things themselves uh, and then spin it. And if that is what we're going to have because of coronavirus, like then you don't need the hacking part, right? You don't have to make people feel like there's something wrong happened if the base is that people don't want to show up, that you've got people screwing around with the vote by mail, that you've got the president and the Republican Party saying that vote by mail is insecure, which sounds insane to me um, as somebody who, who's a permanent absentee voter in California. Um, I, you know, like if that's going to be the baseline, then we should highly, highly expect a massive campaign to delegitimize the election on behalf of whoever is probably losing. Uh, and that's one of the things we got to consider now. I mean, I think Nate's the expert in the actual mechanics of the voting, the legality around that. I think if you're, if I was still at a tech company right now, one of the things I'd really be trying to think about is what are my rules going to be around on voting night of people you know, saying that this entire election should be thrown away, that it was illegitimate, that if, say, the president of the United States loses, that he should not give up power peacefully, are those statements that I'm going to just say are not allowed and, and the like. We, we don't really have any good precedent for those kinds of political arguments. Um, and uh, But that is absolutely what's going to happen if we're on this path. I just want to add one thing there, which is just that also assume that if we have large mail balloting that we will not know the winner on election night and that's one of the norms that really needs to be changed for this election I, i'm not under any sort of misimpression that you're not going to have websites that aren't calling the election by 3 p.m i mean obviously that's going to happen but the responsible news organizations need to think now about how they might you know deal with a situation when you have something like 20 percent of the ballots are not even uh, counted on election night. And some of them will not even have been received because some states will have you know, the rule that you can postmark them on election day. And so that that is for me the rest, when you think about the uh, sort of misinformation typhoon that, that, that uh, could, could result, suppose you have sort of initial data on election night, which is tilting one way, and then you see as often is the case with what's known as the blue shift uh, that we saw in say 2018, that you then have a series of uh, you know, ballots and, and states flipping as a result of the late breaking ballots. And then there's obviously, that's just sort of ripe for all kinds of inferences about impropriety, whether by foreign actors or domestic actors. So I'm gonna say like the firm in there is the whole, the New York Times and 538 with their, their stupid little projection systems and yeah. stuff, I think is completely, if anything the primaries taught us is that those models are useless, right? Like yeah. if you look at the graph of who is going to win the primary. Over and swung. over again though, people act like Nate Silver is like, right. And I'm and, like, is he a snake oil salesman? I like, and I'm not going to bash him. Like I, but, the, but there seems to be this, like uh, people seem to not be able to update their priors on the accuracy of his results. Actually, right. I wanted, if, if we're going to get into that, I, I will defend Nate Silver and their, and, and what they're doing. Um, but I think that's a different conversation. The, the key point, uh, which I think is really important here, is that we have this expectation that we're gonna know who won with a high degree of certainty on election night. And you know, California has made a deliberate policy decision not to do that in yeah. the interest of, um, now it's not a factor in presidential politics because we all know who California is voting for, but it is a factor in a lot of other races. And 
uh, we need to get used to the idea that it is legitimate to take several days to uh, count the vote in order to have a maximally expanded franchise. And that, by the way, if Wisconsin or, uh, or Florida were wise enough to behave that way, we should respect it, even though, in fact, we should encourage it, even though it might mean that we don't know who's elected president election eve. Um, yes. Definitely. Speaking, speaking I mean, of- and, you know, the, the, So generally speaking, right, the phenomenon of, of late mail balloting has been a Western phenomenon, right? So you've got um, Oregon and Washington that have been vote by mail for a long time, uh, Colorado that has joined them, and so have Utah and um, Hawaii. Roughly two-thirds of the ballots in California and in Arizona have been vote by mail in recent elections. And so, you know, with the exception maybe of Colorado and Arizona, none of those are really competitive uh, states that haven't been thought of as battleground states. Most of the battleground states, you look at like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and uh, Wisconsin, they've had mail ballots in the range of 5% or less, right? And so you've never had this problem. But there, you know, you could end up with 30, 40, 50% of the ballots in these battleground states in the Midwest being cast by mail. And then we're gonna have to wait, you know, uh, several days because then there's, because then the lawyers are gonna get involved, right? There's gonna be challenges on the signatures. There's gonna be- uh, Counting chads. Result. What'd you say? Counting chads. Hanging yeah. chads, well, hanging, or in this, about, in this, let's let's be fair. Also, hanging Karens. Yeah, oh, <laughs> don't touch that, Nate. Don't go down that road. It's a trap. <laughs> and Nate, I have a historical question. What was the first presidential election that uh, all of the electors were selected by popular vote in the state? And how long did that take? Like, what was the expectation in those elections of how long it would take to figure out who the college electors was going to be? Well, all right. So that's that's a hard. Answer. Uh, I mean, and you're talking about even when there was restrictive franchise and all that kind of stuff, right? Right. Of course. I mean, I'm not and saying that. Like, so, in the beginning of the 1800s, you know, you that uh, I'd have to look at Alex Kesar's book on this, which, which goes into that. But yeah, I mean, it, you had it wasn't um, that, that you know the state legislatures were picking the electors uh, uh, well into the 19th century. You had it, you know, some kind of suffrage early on, but the um, you know. Some folks have been asking me, well, what, even though Trump is not himself allowed able, is not able to delay the election, could the state legislatures, because the constitution says, right, that state legislatures have the power of choosing electors. And, and the answer on that is yes, they could if they develop those rules before election day, right? So there's something called the Electoral Count Act, which would prevent them from doing so after the fact, but doing it before uh, election day, they could potentially change the rules so that um, that the state legislature passes or that uh, chooses the electors. Uh, Josh Jacobson, you had a great question. I would love to hear. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah. So, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Cool. We hear um, you just fine. So I've lived in Wisconsin for roughly six years now and it it worries me just given how um the state legislature has recently acted toward the upcoming legislate or toward the upcoming election tomorrow and as someone who's been here for a while it feels like there's nothing that can really be done in such a hyper partisan and heavily gerrymandered state and i i'm wondering like 
what can we do as citizens to put pressure on leaders when those leaders represent a very small portion of the state and are so far from where you live. Like the, the thing that worries me the most is that we have these leaders, like the Republican leaders don't seem to be acting in good faith and are right now pushing the governor to reopen or to uh, rescind the safer at home order just so that churches can have uh, services over Easter. And that seems like a really dumb idea given that we're expected to peak caseload in Wisconsin around Easter. And so I'm, I'm skeptical that they actually want to do what's best and I don't know how to get them to care. So this, I think, is a really important question, Nate. What, how much of the problem, in your view, is a pure problem of public administration that we need to address with the assumption that everybody's acting in good faith and everybody wants there to be a reasonable election that we can all agree on? And how much of this problem is really laced with uh, malodorant uh, other factors, whether it's voter suppression or whether it's political parties behaving the way they do, which is to look over their shoulder and ask what is going to advantage or disadvantage them. I mean, I, I look at what the president said today and it seems, or I don't know if it was today, but you know, where you know, the president and Ronna McDaniels have basically come out against vote by mail and that just seems like a conspiracy to murder their own voters. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I, I really don't understand how you could have confidence, and I'm not a partisan Democrat by any means, um, but I don't understand how you can have confidence that you can have, uh, a, leave aside free and fair, a safe election yeah. in the absence of radically expanding vote by mail. And so I, I guess I, I, I sympathize sort of despite myself with Josh's question here, are, is the fundamental problem that the problem is hard or is the fundamental problem that a lot of people don't wanna solve it and they tend to be Republicans? So as you go farther up the sort of governmental chain, it becomes more and more partisan, right? And I try to, I'm trying to work from the bottom up in, in stuff that I'm uh, doing here. Because the local election officials, right, they just don't want their mug on the evening news, right, for being like the new Palm Beach County that screwed up an election, right? And so they're just trying to figure out how to, how to pull this off. Um, it, you know, and, and as you said, it is not clear to me that the partisans actually know what's in their self-interest here, because if it turns out that, you know, we're, not, we're gonna have very little mail balloting in, in the battleground state, um, you can be sure that a lot of the at-risk voters, right, who tend to, to trend Republican, are going to be the ones uh, maybe less likely to show up. So um, I, you know, all of what I was saying about the infrastructure and all of that um, is, is know, cabined by or influenced by the fact that we're having this polarized debate at the state and national level. But in my experience, and this is true in the voter ID debate, it's true in early voting debates, in and um, all kinds of other election administration debates that um, there are there is at least as much loss of votes and bias in the vote counting due to incompetence and screw-ups as there is from intentional malevolent work at the state level and the like. And 
we can fight those fights, right? Um, and, and people should fight those fights on enfranchisement and, and the larger questions of, of access. And, and, and we should have the lawyers are gonna be in court doing this. But um, the, you know, if you look at the last few elections uh, and you look at some of the, the complete screw ups that have happened at the local and state level that were or at least not part of the larger political debate, this actually is, is a, a huge deal. Let me give you an example just so, so you put some numbers on it. Just the, uh, the thing about mail balloting. So it's all well and good. We've got a partisan valence now as to as uh, vote by mail or whether vote by mail should be adopted or not. But you get, you know, close to 4 million people are going to request ballots. I think this is these are the numbers. Charles has an article on this. Um, and they're not by mail. Right, another three million or so are going to get them by mail, um, and for some one reason or another, they're not going to return. Them. And then another million are going to return them, and they or more than a million are not are going to return them, and they're not going to be counted because of all of the the mishaps that happen with signature verification and the like. So it is certainly possible, right, that you could see vote suppression measures that are on that scale, but. There is a lot of work that needs to be done in the basic infrastructure just to pull the election off. Can I ask a quick question to like tagging onto that and like kind of pulling in Alex because I think this is super important, which is kind of just like, there's this interesting part of this to me that is like we've, there have been, as you said, only Western states use vote by mail or not only, but it's predominantly used in Western states uh, in much more with much more wide scale use. Um, and uh, there's all of these, um, there's all of these kind of structural problems with it that you that you just addressed. Um, can we just like put the biggest one on the table, which is that it is like dependent on the freaking US Postal Service, yeah, which yeah. like is honest to God, like a nightmare scenario at scale for what they're actually in charge of doing and in terms of their security and their infrastructure and security. And like, that is, that is like, we were okay with that when we possibly disenfranchised just a couple million people, but now it's going to disenfranchise everyone. We really have problems with it. And I, Alex, I would just love to you to speak to you about this. I mean, I feel like you just have this perfect knowledge um, about kind of a secure, creating a secure system um, in, this, in this capacity on a different type of in infrastructure. Yeah. So, um, so first off, my, my grandfather spent over 30 years as a mail carrier. Uh, and I've Aww. got a lot of respect for the people who are still out there. Uh, we waved to our mail lady this morning, uh, considering, you know, she had a mask, but look, did not look like it was official. It looked like something she had to scrounge up or make herself. Um, and so, right. I mean, I think one of the big questions is whether the U S postal service exists, uh, by November, uh, which right. seems to be an open question based upon funding, uh, and this crisis hitting them. Um, the, you know, I think the you're right. Like we can learn a little bit from the tech side in that um, you know we we build these huge distributed systems on non-reliable networks, and they end up being very messy, right? Um, and for the vast majority of tech uses of things we do online, people just accept that messiness, right? So if you're using Facebook, and then all of a sudden, like your your Instagram, you know, you're using Instagram, you're scrolling through, and it's not working anymore. And there's been something's happened on the internet that's changed your connectivity or that server you're talking to out of the several hundred thousand uh, front end servers uh, at Instagram is breaks, then you have to reload and you're okay with it, right? Like, and so in the tech world, we build these systems to not be that resilient because we're, we're willing to put up with a certain amount of 
loss of information, of inconvenience, of you know, a, a certain percentage of people are not going to be authenticated correctly. Um, and it's fascinating to like come from this world where your your acceptable trade offs are, you know, something like oh well, hundreds of thousands of people are going to have their accounts stolen every day, and that's an acceptable trade off for running a a multi billion user service where that would never be accepted uh, in the in the election security world, right? Um, and you know, just a, a handful of people pulling off something bad can turn into a reason to perhaps invalidate all of the results, right? Or at least a massive legal case. Um, and I think that's one of, you know, that's when people talk about online voting, right? Which I would love to see in my lifetime, but not early in my lifetime. I'd like to see a little uh, as gray as my beard is. And I'm, uh, I see I, not a lot of roots here, so it's good. Everybody has been like rocking their natural hair color before. If, if only I had roots, that's what I'm... <laughs> Dude, yeah. Well, I'm turning in, the headphones are covering it, but I'm turning into like my dad's wedding photo from 1975. I look like a chips extra now, my hair. Um, uh, but like, uh, you know, when I'm a little more gray, I'd like to see internet voting because like all of these systems that we've built on the internet, like we're, we accept a certain amount of bad authentications, a certain amount of loss, a certain amount of people being shut out of an account. And when you talk about that on voting, that's disenfranchisement or it's fraud. Um, well, but, could have you know, money. Alex, just go over to Estonia. You can see how online voting works. Our colleague Thomas Ilvis, you know. Put, what, hey, what happens in Estonia? Is it great? Is it perfect? Does everything work out? Spoilers. Have, uh, well, someday for you, if you want to have a um, active discussion, you should have our colleague Tomas Ilvis. Who's yeah, we should have Tomas on. That's right. a great idea. Right. A country um, with the population of San Mateo County. Uh, certainly is reflective and like well, zero, in, zero yeah everybody speaks one language no diversity of any measure yes it's totally but, reflective but i do want to say about uh, in in defense of estonia and tomas ilvis when i um uh uh first of all donald trump was not the first head of state to use twitter uh when Tomas Ilvis was president of Estonia, he had an active Twitter account that he managed himself. And I used to tweet things at him and he would respond. You know, he would tweet lawfare articles. And, you know, when he was passing through Cambridge once, uh, uh, he stopped in Jack Oldsmith's office and uh, had a conversation on the Lawfare podcast, which we ran under the headline, Jack interviews the president. Um, and, um, you know, like we have this assumption that having a president who has a really active Twitter account is like a bad thing, which it only is because the president is Donald Trump. But when the president was Tomas Ilvis and it was thoughtful and the Twitter presence was, uh, engaged and intellectually serious and, uh, thoughtful. I thought it was a really cool thing that a president of a sovereign state was engaging directly with the population via Twitter. And it never like occurred to me what a nightmare that would be because I just didn't imagine the difference in personality. So that's a total aside, but I want to say in defense of Tomas. I'm not attacking Estonia. I just, yeah, Alex, Nate's making a little joke because was... Tomas like uses Estonia as an example, like in any circumstance and it's just not not <laughs> reflective of the united alex States of my grandfather was an online um voter uh voter counter uh in estonia so i just really want you to <laughs> yeah, I, well, I what do you have against the estonian people alex <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
I, I thought that Alex was insulting San Mateo County. That's what yeah. I I'm pretty um, careful there. I might probably taxes are due. I'm going to add someone in here and introduce her. Um, this is, she is a personal friend, um, an old friend, uh, Kate Gage. Um, she is uh, the founding partner at the Movement Cooperative, which is basically um, a democratic operative um, uh, nonprofit that uh, seeks to help do exactly this type of stuff, empower, uh, use technology to empower elections. Um, and she uh, has been with um, in politics for a while. I think you, I think Kate, you joined in politics during Obama primarily, and you kind of, you did advance for Obama for all the campaigns and then his presidency. So anyways, Kate is on and she just, um, I thought she would have some interesting, um, she, she said, she texted me and said, it is really weird to hear academics talking about the stuff that we work up, we're working on in like real time every day. And so it's, uh, so anyways, Kate, welcome to the show. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and with that, uh, that lovely introduction that will not at all, uh, describing me as a democratic operative is not at all going to um, backfire. Whatever. Um, I don't know what's your Twitter if case people are looking. <laughs> you can just find me through Kate Clonick's Twitter. That's the only answer. How would you describe <laughs> yourself, you democratic operative? Never, here? never, never the operative. Never the operative. So I what, don't actually what, know what that word means. I heard it on the West Wing. Does. Yeah, so how do you describe yourself before we let Kate brand you with oh. the scarlet O? Yeah. At one point I referred to myself another way. One time I referred to myself and changed my Twitter bio to be an organizing mercenary and that didn't go over well either. <laughs> um, uh, so <laughs> I had to, I had to change that one as soon as it uh, was quoted in, in, in an article. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm just, uh, just a, just a person like us all trying to, trying to get through. Um, no, but, but I, you run something called the movement cooperative or you're a founding partner of it. So like, what, did it, what is it that you do? What, that is even harder to describe. Um, we work with uh, a lot of the progressive organizing groups. Uh, we make sure they have access to voter contact tools and they're, we're responsible for many of the text messages that you get and various uh, uh, canvassing and online and digital tools, um, getting in the hands of of progressives is mostly what we do. So what is it when you texted Kate that it was weird to hear academics talking about the stuff you deal with in real time? What, what is it that, that uh, Sorry, I mean, we're Kate. outing your text message here. It's like a- End-end you know, encryption is not so useful if you don't trust the uh, client. On, yeah, on we were the totally not using it's Signal. A, it's a kind of Lisa Page, Pete Strzok kind of moment here where, you know, um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm like, how big is this? Uh, how big is this viewership that we've got going on here? That's not something to worry about. Don't worry. Huge. <laughs> um, Alex is very big in St. Petersburg, so you can <laughs> <laughs> Florida. <laughs> yeah, I, I work. I work. I, I work. I've never been in academia. Um, I'm well aware that you all exist and that you you deeply <laughs> things and and study them. Uh, I've always been on the uh, political organizing government. I spent all eight years of the Obama administration in in uh, inside the executive branch, um, and then now have been working with uh, these organizing and activist groups. And so, 
I just am consistently fascinated by, I'm just like, you all know so much about this. This is amazing. It's, it's like you spend all of your time learning about these things and then talking about it. Um, I feel like that's a great compliment. Yeah. It feels like, it feels so much like sometimes like I, you know, I don't know. You don't want to be the ivory tower academic, in my opinion, ever, especially not when you do this kind of real stuff and you're at being asked to advise in it. So like, yeah, I think that it's, it's nice that you think that, um, <laughs> I, uh, I will also say, Kate, I think this is an interesting fact about you. Can you please tell us about your black, black, what is it? Blacksmithing blacksmithing class. Oh, yes. Yes. Coronavirus made canceled my blacksmithing class that I was taking in, in Brooklyn before, uh, beforehand, but, um, my creative outlet was, I found an, a wonderful woman in Red Hook who allows you to come in and heat up metal and, and hit it consistently into different oh shapes. Oh my God. This is turning yeah. into like a Brooklyn really local. <laughs> Someone's going to hit you in the face with a big old fistful of sourdough starter. Oh, Alex. oh the yeast is burning. Oh God. Yeah. Oh. Um, but I did have a real question. I had a real question. Okay. Um, to get you all back on track of actually hear people hear real things from you. Um, which was, I, you started talking about this, but there's been a lot of conversations, especially with the folks that I work with, about the unintended consequences of pushing for vote by mail and vote by mail as the silver bullet, especially, and like all of the different things that need to be put into place alongside vote by mail to ensure that ballot tracking and coercion protection. And I was wondering if you all could talk about kind of dig a little deeper into what are the other things that need to be set up to ensure that it is effectively and equitably implemented. And then, you know, there's been some discussions around, you know, are states going to move too quickly into vote by mail policies that might be things that are heard of harder, that might have unintended consequences um, in the future that might be sort of difficult to reverse if, if need be. And so I'm interested if that's rings true to you all as it does for a lot of the folks that I work with. Yes. Yeah, so so it's a great question. And just to like preface uh, Nate and Alex's thoughts on it, just wanna say, you know, like vote by mail has advantages and disadvantages as a general matter. Um, the argument for it as an exigency in this situation is predicated on its remoteness um, and actually skirts the question of its general advantages or disadvantages. And there are also issues that it doesn't address, like who gets a ballot and who's on the rolls and who's not. Um, and so it is, I don't think anybody should be representing it as a kind of cure-all or a magic bullet. I, in my, my view for what it's worth is that it is a, uh, appropriate exigency in the context of a situation in which we're trying to conduct an election with, while maintaining distance from one another. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to confuse that with a general posture that we should all be voting for mail by mail all the time. Yeah. Well, here I'll even I'll even share uh, the my my slide that I'm sharing on this. Um, are you able to see the screen right here? Mm -hmm. So so first of all, let, let me just go through the the, the people I would mail. I'll go I'll, I'll start with the concerns that you mentioned. First of all, 
Checking my mail is not simple. I, although we tend to think that given how many the voters in California and in the Western states who haven't voted by mail before, there's all kinds of opportunities to screw it up. This is why when it comes to balloting, you do see um, that the older, whiter, more educated voters are likely uh, to vote by mail. It's true that Democrats, all things being equal, are also more likely to, to vote by mail. Recent elections, that wasn't historically the case. A lot of that has to do with Democratic uh, mobilization efforts. I heard that there was certain popular, I think someone told me recently that there are certain types of like, like minority populations that don't trust the mail. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just, I mean, it's not just whether they don't trust or whether they just prefer polling places, you know, that that is definitely what we've seen. So particularly in the South, you see that African-Americans are using early voting more than they're uh, using uh, by mail. And so the problems that occur with voting with vote by mail, right, is the failure to receive ballots, right? It requires all kinds of the technology that we're talking about before. And something which I think is critical is that you, um, it, you absolutely need a very reliable database of the voters. Uh, and that seems like, oh, well, doesn't every jurisdiction have that? Well, if you don't, if you're not sending ballots to people, you can have all kinds of errors in the mail. Uh, uh, yeah, what about in like, so sorry to interrupt again, but what about like consistent addresses and like your, like right now everyone's like fleeing and going to different places. They're out of state. They're in all of these different kinds of environments, not just now, but like, even if you're like, there are plenty of people who flip addresses every couple of months. No, but I want, I want to talk about now because that's the thing that, that uh, is keeping me up a little bit right now, which is that there's just this huge social dislocation that's going to be happening in the next few months all kinds of people who are moving uh, to different addresses. And that has electoral implications, right? If they were just driving to the polling place, maybe they would figure out, all right, they just go to where they have historically voted. But if they're going to be receiving the ballot by mail, that has you know uh, huge implications for whether they're going to actually be able to vote. Um, but then there's errors in casting it. And then you've got these errors in the rejecting ballots. You know, one of the things that you know, people think when they when they vote that they're not supposed to say who they are, but with a mail ballot, you have to sign on the outside of the ballot so that then it gets verified against the signature that's on file. So you lose all of these uh, ballots, which is why to be, then ask answer um, Kate Gage's question, you have <coughs> you have to supplement the mail system with some kind of polling place voting. Um, but it's not just uh, racial minority voters, but also voters with disabilities rely on polling places often to, to cast ballots. And so then the question is, well, how do you develop safe polling places, right? And this is where you've got to start thinking about how you incorporate social distancing, how you, um, you know, are you going to have poll workers with PPE that they're wearing? That's why I was talking about trying to construct the National Guard to help with this. That level of commitment that we're going to need you're going to, the polling place that you're going to do is very different than the one you have traditionally. There's even some talk of like curbside vote, voting, you vote from your car that you would drive up and, and think about that. So all those kinds of uh, uh, different things uh, we've got to experiment with, have a lot of time to, to think it through. So we are joined I now, I, I like, want to bring in here Jordan Ellenberg, who is a mathematics professor at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, uh, Jordan has done uh, some, uh, 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 been involved, I think, to some degree in the, in the uh, 
um, issues around uh, gerrymandering in Wisconsin, but has also been uh, uh, deep in, in data stuff about COVID-19. And his question suggests that news has broken while we have been on this uh, call. So Jordan, why don't you bring us up to speed on what's happening in Wisconsin and then we can, and then pose your question about it. Okay, so to bring people up to speed, uh, the governor issued an executive order saying that we would not uh, have an in-person election tomorrow as scheduled after the special session he called of the state legislature to consider the question was adjourned about five seconds after it opened. Uh, the legislature refusing to take up the issue. Uh, the, st the state Supreme Court just ruled, I think about 20 minutes ago, uh, along ideological lines that the governor does not have the power um, to stop the election from being held. And uh, as far as we know here, there's gonna be an election tomorrow um, with however many polling places in Milwaukee they can open. They're saying five out of 180. So I guess my question is what happens after this? Is there some kind of legal remedy if sort of they keep people six feet apart and people have to wait so long that it becomes no longer April 7th, for instance, like at the time when they would vote or is it simply the legislature can do what it pleases and whoever can be legally prevented from voting is legally prevented from voting and that's it all right thank you jordan um first that if if you're in line on election you know if, if, if the general rule is that if you are waiting in line to vote at the time that the polls close you still have the right to vote so even if, you know if there's a five-hour wait and there you're still in line so so Let's push that to the side. That's not terribly responsive to the main question, though. Um, the like you should expect that now. I mean, this is so. This is Wisconsin Supreme Court. You should expect some federal court action under sort of the constitutional right to vote to be brought uh, on behalf of these voters because look, you need some mechanism for people to to cast their ballots. Now, um, the I'm, I'm looking at the order right now and. I'm not, it's not clear to me whether this affects the extended period of mail balloting, which the lower state court had had authorized a little while ago. So it may still be the case that um, larger numbers of people will be able to uh, vote by mail, but this is, you know, a total disaster. I mean, this is just, you know, exactly what we need. It's a good thing that we're making these mistakes during a primary, uh, just so we, we can have the warnings for what's going to happen in the fall. You often don't get that kind of training ground. Um, but this is, you know, what we've seen in Wisconsin over the last few days is exactly what we should be trying to prevent in November. All right. Um, we have time. Uh, we have about nine minutes left. Uh, and I actually, unlike yesterday, I need to wrap up on time today, uh, but we have a few questions in the queue. So uh, I'm gonna ask uh, questioners to keep questions short and uh, uh, let's have uh, uh, relatively brief answers too. Ted Gilchrist, the floor is yours. Hi, um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a technical person. I, I work at a software company and I do feel a sense of powerlessness, especially when it comes to the voting by mail. So my question is, is there a place where people like me can go to, to somehow help push the for, ball forward? I mean, just as a foot soldier, not as not as designing systems or anything, but just maybe educationally or something like that to facilitate the vote by mail. And by the way, I'm from New Hampshire, which as far as I know, 
doesn't have a robust vote right now. Alex, what is a poor techie to do in this situation to advance the ball? So there are a couple of projects that people are working on to try to, um, you know, so Nate had an excellent point about vote not by mail, not fixing all of these problems with voting integrity. The other thing vote by mail doesn't fix is most of the technical security problems, right? Like, you know, voting is this big process for which there's a lot of steps. Um, and so if you have vulnerabilities in your registration system, uh, in your databases, in your tabulation system, or the, the mechanisms to to respond or uh, to uh, tabulate and to send out intermediate results, then those are all things that can be exploited. And I think, um, I'm not sure, I, this is probably not so relevant for this year, unfortunately, it's probably just too late, but there's a couple of really interesting projects going on where people are building trustworthy open source software uh, that would allow uh, states and localities to utilize that software and not rely upon these really honestly crappy commercial vendors who build really bad products. Um, and so one that I like is called Election Guard by Microsoft. It's open source. You can go to GitHub and participate. Um, there's a couple other ones. I'll, I'll try to grab a couple. Um, but uh, I think contributing one of those is something a techie can do. Now that's a long project because you got to build the thing and then people have to adapt it. But maybe for 2022 and 2024, we can get away from all of this custom crappy software and we can get a number of states on something that's much more trustworthy and open source. All right, uh, also a question Taylor made for you, Alex, uh, from Cameron Ladke, who uh, I don't think is still on the call. So I'll just read it. There's been a lot of criticism of the algorithms that drive Facebook optimizing for attention and the fact that exacerbates polarization and helps myths slash disinformation spread, i.e. anger inducing clickbait spreads faster than nuanced analysis. How important do you think it is to be looking deeply at the mechanics of Facebook's newsfeed algorithms and the content it is opti optimized for? Yeah, so I, I think it's much less important than what people talk about. That the, the conventional wisdom among uh, kind of the chattering class uh, post-2016 is that uh, Facebook algorithms especially, but algorithms overall have driven political division and have driven all of this stuff and optimized. And it's a really simplistic view of how these algorithms work. Um, we, when I was at Facebook, we did an experiment of looking at news, uh, news feeds in a just complete uh, chronological, reverse chronological order versus with a normal news feed algorithm. And you end up with a lot more fake news. Now there's a right broad, but like really truly fake low quality news, you end up with a lot more of that in your feed if you use chronological without Facebook's algorithmic ranking. Uh, and part of that is because the volume of politically motivated shares that people do massively outstrips when people do pictures of their kids or they write like a little thing or they they, they do something actually personal. And, and Facebook is always optimized for the things that are interpersonal and that aren't news-based. And so um, the, the truth is the vast majority of disinformation is quote unquote earning its spread because it is convincing people to spread it on their behalf. Um, and so the, there's actually a massive kind of misstatement of how much algorithms are the problem. The truth is that people are the problem, right? And that people will spend all day amplifying a message, maybe not to try to convince people, but as a shibboleth of what they believe and to reinforce their own tribal affiliation. And there's there's actually been some quantitative studies around this by Brendan Nyhan and some other folks that have demonstrated that basically this conventional wisdom about algorithms is incorrect. Okay, uh, we have time for one more question. And uh, Cindy has sent in one that is a cautionary uh, tale about vote by mail. Cindy, uh, why should, uh, 
uh, give us your caution about vote by mail. So we are across the country from our typical address. And so we got our vote, our mail, a ballot sent to us. We put it in the mail. And then um, instead of going to the Board of Elections back in California, they, it came back to us. They have a small reference address at the bottom right-hand corner of the envelope in California. Um, that basically, it's like when you sign it, they see where they sent it. That tiny little address was used as the two address instead of the huge Board of Elections address on the other side. Um, luckily, we had sent it in early enough that I could and did take it down to the post office and uh, had them try it again. But it was um, disconcerting, to say the least, <laughs> to find the ballot returned to my mailbox here. Yeah, so that's a really, like, uh, Nate, I, I want to ask about the the sort of unintended consequences there are going to be in any massive sudden change to the system, even done for the best of reasons under optimal circumstances, uh, expertly and without rancor. And we can ask, you know, how much of those optimal conditions we're going to get here. You're still going to get uh, unintended consequences, and those consequences are going to have. Uh, disenfranchisements associated with them, or they're going to have names, uh, not just Cindy associated with them. Uh, so who are going to be in a, in, a, in a sudden shift to liberalizing vote by mail? Who are going to be the losers from an enfranchisement point of view? Granted, there will be, I agree with you, there'll be more winners than losers. It's the right thing to do. But after election day, we're going to get a whole bunch of stories about my ballots are returned. My like, who's gonna who's gonna get screwed by this? So there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people who will be in Cindy's situation on election day. The question is whether it's going to be millions of them. And so and so then and then your question is, well, what's going to be the bias in that sample of people who get screwed because of the move to vote by mail? And I I can't really answer that question right now. And so. I think the concern is, you know, because as I said before, it, it really depends on how you roll out vote by mail. Um, and in particular, one of the most, you asked about low hanging fruit before, one of the most important things you can do with vote by mail is allow people to cure mistakes. This is true in election administration generally, but give people enough time so that if they, they can be contacted, if there's a mistake with their ballot, and if they, you know, if, if the ballot was not received, that they can cure the defect. And that again goes back to where we, we started, which is that the most precious resource in this election is time. That we need to make sure that the election officials have time to count the votes and administer the election. And one of the reasons that we shouldn't call the result on election night. Kate? Kate, you're muted. Yeah, sorry. That was such a rookie move, guys. Like this is my first Zoom meeting or something. Um, sorry. Um, no, I'm, so I'm going to close this out, but I just wanted to say that, um, and Alex, I wanted to give you a chance to, to add anything on that. And could you also, I actually would just like to know, Alex, really quick, if you can sum it up, the misinformation, disinformation you guys are specifically working on right now around elections. Can I amplify that just for a second, which is, Alex, what is the thing that's keeping you up at night from the standpoint of misinformation in this election? What is it that you think is the biggest threat? 
that we might see in November. I think what we're going to see is the uh, kind of disinformation networks uh, that we saw operated from foreign actors in 2016 are going to go domestic, um, as Nate can discuss in much more detail. Uh, that's not necessarily even illegal, right, as long as you're careful to not run ads and the like. Uh, and so I think we're going to see kind of domestic disinformation networks that the tech companies are much less likely to take action on because of uh, the political ramifications, especially if those are tied to existing kind of partisan media outlets. Uh, there's already been an example of this with a number of uh, kind of fake uh, personas surrounding Daily Caller um, that uh, did not result in this kind of action from Facebook that we normally see uh, in other situations. I'm, I'm also worried about uh, when it comes to foreign interference, uh, our team has done a bunch of research on this, uh, io.stanford.edu, if you're interested in our reports. We just published four more reports last week. Awesome. And one of the things we're seeing is that foreign actors, uh, Russia, but also a number of other countries, are now hiring uh, disinformation actors within the culture that they're trying to influence. And so uh, it is much easier to find people who might be somewhat politically motivated, but then love money who uh, are native speakers of the right language, who understand the political environment, it is much easier to hire those people and support them inside the country you're trying to influence than to try to build the same capability domestically with people who are doing it as their second language. And I, I think it is quite possible that if we had foreign interference uh, in 2020, that it's quite possible that people actually with their hands on the keyboard will be Americans. And they they might not even know who's paying for it. They might not even know they're being influenced. And um, my, my other big fear is continues to be is I'm afraid of the United States becoming the World Cup of disinformation, where, you know, the idea that the US election is is a national security issue for effectively every country in the world. Um, the idea that the Chinese and the Saudis uh, and all these other countries that have really aggressive disinformation activity, that they're just going to sit on the sidelines while the Russians get what they want, nobody else, I think is, is foolish. And so I, we very well could see a number of different nations running uh, non-coordinated campaigns, perhaps even against one another, um, and that influence in our discussions, which I think would be unfortunate. Well, on that cheery note. <laughs> you you no. invite the wrong two people for the cheery on podcast. Cheery note, right. Nate's son is going to do a magic show for us. <laughs> okay. Next time. I, it occurs to me that I'm like, I can make my arms disappear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I too am a, a magician. But uh, seriously, guys, um, I, we have to close out because Ben has to get out of here. Um, but I wanted to say, I really hope this is like, I think one of has been one of like the best shows, not to pick between my children of all of these wonderful shows and our guests, but this has been so fast moving and just chock full of like really good information. We hope that you'll come back sooner rather than later and give us an update on what you're working on um, and have a beer with us where everybody knows your name. We all know your name because we put it on the Zoom thing. And so I can read it. Really Some of us are still working, Nate. I don't know about you. Four o'clock is beer o'clock for you. That's interesting. <laughs> Wait, isn't four o'clock beer o'clock everywhere now? <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, I don't make it till four most days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I'm like, 12 30 o'clock <laughs> no it's um but anyways i you guys this was amazing it was super fun great conversation it made me actually just want to do it for another hour um and uh hopefully we get to do that in like in the next couple of days or weeks so stay safe and it was great having you um this has been in lieu of fun uh which is basically what you do uh because when we don't have fun anymore um, and so, uh, at some point we're going to have to have someone named Lou on the show just so that we can like finish out this pun. Um, 
but uh, thank you for joining us today. And I think that the, what do we have on, who do we have on for tomorrow, Ben? Have I have we no idea. Have we have decided no on tomorrow? I don't, I haven't looked. I don't yeah. have anything going on though. I'm just working in my garden. But What's so? tomorrow? All of time just blends together. Yeah. yeah, there's like, I literally like, yeah, I said to, I finished teaching my Monday class and then I walked into the living room and I said to my partner, I was like, is today Monday? Like, I just like, don't even know. Like, it's just like, it's completely weird. This is what it's like to be a dog, right? Yes. It's like a stream of experience. <laughs> the, the thing that we do know about tomorrow's show is we will be back at our normal time five o'clock Eastern time, not six o'clock. And, uh, you know, all day tomorrow, you won't have fun, but in lieu of fun, uh, there's us. So we will see you then. Thanks all. Bye guys. See you soon. Thanks, Thanks for having us.